We have this morning such a such an opportunity to be able to come into this place today and uh, and to come and what a wonderful presence of the Lord that I feel. Amen. I was I was looking at uh, the life of of a, an individual who played a very crucial role in the world um, many years ago. His name is Alfred. And Alfred was a Swedish, chem, a Swedish chemist who he made millions and millions of dollars by investing in and in manufacturing dynamite. It was the early uh, stages of, of dynamite, of, of it being developed and uh, he played a very crucial role in this. It was in 1980, or I'm sorry, in 1888 that Alfred's brother Ludwig died in France. And as Alfred was reading the obituary in a French newspaper, his grief turned to this very heavy dismay and confusion. Because what he was reading in that newspaper was not his brother's obituary. But instead, it was his own. The newspaper had gotten the two brothers mixed up. And they already had an obituary ready for him. And that's what they published. And in that obituary, it was uh, this moniker that they had for him. They called him the Merchant of Death. And as he read that headline in that obituary, it was describing this man who had become rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before. Now, this wasn't ever his intent when they were developing dynamite, but that is what it ended up being used for in in many, uh, many cases. And it was from that day forward that Alfred was uh, a changed man. Troubled by what the editor had written there regarding him, Alfred, in a sense, he wrote his own obituary by changing the last, what ended up being eight years of his life. He had left more than nine million dollars to fund awards for those who did work that would benefit humanity and not destruction. He had this rare opportunity to evaluate his life there at an older age and to evaluate what does life mean. And Alfred, his last name is Nobel. And perhaps you have heard of the Nobel Prizes. That was this man. It was his initial investments that and his his work in, in honoring those who would do good throughout the world. Uh, and, and he had this opportunity, this rare, very rare opportunity to uh, really evaluate his life toward the end and to say, I want to establish a new legacy. And so before his life was over, he made sure to do that. He made sure to, uh, to, to make, uh, his end of his life very different from what he had been known before that. You know, for us, the time of our death is very, it's, it's unknown. None of us know when our last breath is going to be taken. The way of our death is unpredictable. We have no idea uh, how that will take place. But the fact is inescapable that 
that 100% of people who come into this world will eventually die. In fact, it tells us even in Ecclesiastes that there is no man that hath power over the spirit to retain the spirits. Neither hath he power in the day of death. We don't have that control. We one day will die. And so we look at this and we see that eternity is unavoidable. That we here on this, in the, on this earth right now, we are living a life that one day will end here on earth, but there is a life that goes way, way beyond what we are living. In fact, if you have a, a something to write with and in, in those notes area, if you just draw a little dot there towards uh, towards the left-hand side of that and then an, 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 a line and an arrow extending out to the right, and that dot and a line just extending out to the right with an arrow on the end and, and you see there your life and... If we look at our life here on earth, the, the whatever time we're allotted, no matter how many years that may be, it's still really just represented by that dot that begins that line. It's just a little tiny bit, a small fraction of, of when, when you put it in eternity's scope. When you, when you look at eternity, the fact that, that there is an eternal life and, 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 etern- and what we do here on earth, it does matter. It does, uh, it, it is going to play a crucial role in, in all of the rest of that time span of our life. And so, and so this, the startling thing I believe has, has happened, uh, among Western Christians and that many of us habitually think and act as if there is no eternity. Whereas if what we do in this life does not really have eternal consequences. But the one thing that has stood the test of eternity, the word of God, makes it clear that what we do here in this life does have eternal consequences. And I'm thankful that even though sin entered into the world, as we talked about a few weeks ago, the consequences of sin, that is death, that, that God made a way to redeem us for those sins and that he made a way for us to live with him for eternity. See, this is an opportunity that we have today to evaluate God where uh, what do you want me to do? And in fact, this is a question that Nicodemus was pondering when he came to Jesus in John chapter 3. And he asked the question, what must a man do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, responding to him, said, except a man be born again, he cannot enter or he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless a man is born again. And this is... Uh, what we've been talking about, that how we must be born again. And uh, he, confused about what Jesus was saying, asked him to further explain what he meant 
by being born again. And so we see in verse 5 that Jesus answered. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the king, or he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He must be born of water and of the Spirit. That is the new birth. That being born again consists of being born of water and of the Spirit. And we've uh, last week really looked and focused on this aspect of repentance. And uh, today I want to take a look at water baptism. And I know for many that are here today, uh, you may say this is nothing new to me, but uh, but I want to take a look at what it means to be born again and the necessity of every aspect of the new birth experience. We have uh, in scripture, we see repentance, water baptism, and spirit baptism, all three of these things being needed for the new birth. You cannot be halfway born. You all three of these are necessary. It's not just one component of this or, or two components of this that are necessary for a birth. Now, all three components of this are necessary for a new birth, a spiritual birth. And while each of these experiences are, 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 uh, distinct, the work of salvation is only complete when all three of them have been experienced when all three of them have been accomplished in somebody's life. And we see that in Acts 2.38 where Peter explaining to the crowd that is gathered there again asking what must we do? I guess this time the real question is what must we do in order to have our sins forgiven? And Jesus responding to them says repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We see this uh, this response to what we must do in order to have our sins forgiven. Now, if we look at the natural birth. and we Jesus likening this spiritual experience to a birth. We see some, uh, some comparisons that we can make between a natural birth and a new birth. This spiritual birth. In a natural birth, the first thing that must take place in order for a new life to, to come is, is you have that point of conception. From conception, that baby grows in the womb and, and then that baby eventually will leave the womb. And after leaving the womb, the baby will take his first breath. Hopefully even cry a little bit and, and scream. That's, uh, it's one time where you have no problem with the baby and hearing that noise. And uh, for some fathers who may be sitting outside the room if they don't want to be in there and to hear that that cry and or, or anybody in, you know that would would be there to hear that cry is is a joyful thing to hear because that baby is experiencing life. But we see that conception. That spiritually we see that same thing that happens in individuals is, is we see something begin to be conceived in a man, a, a person who was born into sin, somebody who's born into sin and the, and the, the word of God or faith begins to enter in and be conceived in somebody and they see that there is something new 
a new life that I can live. That God begins working on them and they, they see the person that they are and they, and they say, I can't live the same way that I'm living. If I want, if I want to spend eternity in heaven, there's something that begins to be conceived in them about what must, what changes must take place. And in fact, from that conception, they evaluate their past, evaluate their life, and they begin to, this, this process of repentance, where they look at their past, and we talked about this last week, repentance, uh, where you look at your past and you say, I'm, 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 Dying of my past or leaving that behind in order to pursue what God has called me to, which is a life, uh, a life that is not bound by sin. And so we see that conception begin to take place in somebody. But then there, there needs to be a time where you are born and you leave the womb, that water baptism moment where there is a new life that is coming out. It's a very, miraculous thing that takes place when you see that baby coming to life and the same thing when somebody comes up out of the water you have a brand new person there they may look the same but it's a brand new life who has taken on the name of Jesus Christ in that moment of water baptism and then we see the baby taking their first breath and and we see the breath of God begin to be breathed into somebody as they, as they receive the spirit or the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And we see the spirit of God, the breath of God coming into an individual in that moment. And so we see these comparisons that can be made between a natural birth and a new birth. I want to make just another, um, link between repentance and water baptism, a link from uh, that conception to the, the the birth that is actually taking place. See, at repentance, what is taking place is that God is destroying uh, sin's present dominion in a person's life. And there are things that they are presently dealing with that can be de- that will be destroyed when somebody is turning away from their old past to the new. Uh, to the new beginning that God has called them to, that God, He is removing a barrier that's preventing that close relationship with Him. When there's repentance that, uh, that somebody comes to and true repentance where you, uh, shun the past and begin a new life, that, uh, that place of repentance, uh, God is destroying those, those present things that are there. But at water baptism, God is dealing with the future consequences of sin in somebody's life. That we, we read in scripture how, uh, how sin leads to death. But it's not just talking about a physical death. A spiritual death is really what it's pointing to. That spiritually you cannot, uh, you cannot have eternal life while, uh, w- without water baptism in the name of Jesus. Because that water baptism that uh, is dealing with that future consequence of sin. It's only by baptism that you can have that consequence, which is eternal death, to be removed from your life. Uh, it's, and it, is, it is by baptism that's done. And God, he's removing not just the future consequence, but he's removing the legal record of your sin. The record that, that you have 
of, of all of your sins, past, present, even future, as, as you are baptized, you may still come and, uh, and, and make mistakes and sin. But if you have been baptized, that, that record has been erased. And we come, we talked about some last week about, uh, about how repentance is still necessary throughout our life to come to God and to continue to turn away from any, any uh, sin that we may have in our life that is present. But both of these things, as we look at repentance and water baptism, both of these things are necessary for forgiveness and for the remission of our sins. For God to cast us, cast, uh, you know, a, a new, um, a new blank sheet over our life and to say all of those things that have been written down about every sin that, that has taken place in your life, all of that we're beginning anew. It's a fresh lease on life. Now I want to look at the subject of water baptism. The first, I don't think is probably going to be a, uh, a revelation to anybody, but uh, if, if we are just looking at, you know, what is water baptism, uh, we look at it, the fact that it is a ceremony in which one who has repented of his or her sins is then immersed in water in the name of Jesus for the remission of those sins. It's an act of faith in Jesus Christ. It's this, it's this going to a place, and, and here we have a baptismal tank that is, is prepared. It's ready at any time for anybody who, uh, who is who's at a place that they have repented of their sins, and, and they're ready to have those sins uh, re- removed from their life. Uh, we have that ready, but it doesn't have to be done in a church, in a baptismal tank. It can be done in a bathtub at somebody's house or a pool or a, a lake or, or a river. We see it, you know, it could be anywhere that a, a water baptism, anywhere that the water is present and somebody is able to be immersed in that water that is a suitable place for baptism. But it's a very crucial thing that happens uh, as part of the new birth experience. Now, there's some questions about water baptism that uh, arise within Christianity, among Christians. And over the 2,000 years since we've seen baptism emerge as part of the salvation plan that God has for his people, because if you look into the Old Testament, God did not require um, this new birth. It was not a... Uh, It was not the same experience of salvation that they would have. But coming into the point in which Jesus died for our sins from that day forward, we see this salvation method, this new birth experience that must be, uh, uh, that that everyone must experience. And so from that day, uh, from over these 2,000 years, we do see, though, uh, some Differences of opinion among some, uh, or I should say differences of, of uh, practice among even churches and, and denominations on the way that they administer baptism. But I want to go back, not looking at church history, but I just want to go back, how did they do it at the beginning? I don't, I don't just want to base this on what did the church before me do. I don't want to base this on what did the church of uh, of the 1900s do, or what did the church of 
of the, um, the even the 300s or 500. Let, let's go back to the beginning where those who were with Jesus and those who, who preached the, uh, the original gospel... Let's, let's go back and let's see how they did it. And I want to, I want to experience it the same way that the original church experienced it. Let's see what scripture has to say about this. And so we look at scripture and what, what does it have to say about baptism? And one question that we come to is this matter of salvation and the fact of does water baptism save you? Is, is this an, an act? And, and this question really comes up with many of saying, well, that is, that is merely a work of, of human, uh, you know, a human work that you're doing. And you're saying that that human work saves me. And, and I, in fact, believe, and, you know, I, I'm playing the, the part of somebody else that somebody may say that, that they believe that it's no human act can save somebody, but it's what we see here in Ephesians 2.8, that by grace are you saved through faith. It's only by the grace of God that we're saved, and that's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. That we are saved by the grace of God who became our sacrifice for sin upon the cross, and I have no dispute against that. We are saved by the grace of God. I'm thankful that God had grace enough to go to a cross and that had he not done that, there is no effect that would, uh, that would be in place through baptism except through the grace of God who gave his life on a cross. We are saved by grace. It's not by any act of my own that I'm saved. I am saved because Jesus died on a cross for my sins. I'm saved because Jesus compelled me to come come to him and he revealed himself through scripture or he revealed himself through the testimony of his body, the, the, the church. He revealed himself to tell me about, uh, about this uh, this. Uh, act of salvation that we can experience. That's why I'm saved. But Jesus himself said in Mark 16 that he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. That there is salvation on one hand and there is damnation on the other hand. An eternal life or an eternal life with God in heaven or eternity in hell. There is, there is one, uh, one, uh, end result for he who is, belie- believes in God and is baptized and another for he who does not and, uh, and believe, he who does not believe and henceforth is not baptized because they do not believe the word of God. Um, that uh, there is an eternity for them as well. See, God has chosen to remit our sins or to forgive our sins at baptism. That's what, that's the path in which God chose for the remittance of sins to take place. We already read it in Acts 2.38. We can look at it again that 
Uh, when they're asking about their sins, what must I do to have my sins forgiven? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. It's that act of baptism uh, and repentance that we see the remission of sins take place. We see that again in Acts 22, verse 16. Here we have, um, we have a, an individual that uh, is, is, uh, has received the message of baptism and they say, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. We see that the washing away of sins takes place here with this experience of baptism. That this is the path in which God has chosen to forgive sins. It is through baptism in the name of Jesus. Now, baptism, what it does is it identifies us with the death of Jesus Christ. The death and the burial, I should put those together, the death and the burial of Jesus, uh, we see that identifying um, or that uh, coming to us through uh, this experience of baptism. It's in Romans chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 2, these two uh, portions of scripture that we see these this linkage between the death and burial of Jesus and baptism uh, for us. So Romans chapter 6, if we want to go there. Paul here writing to the church, uh, talking again about sin. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, no, we don't want to continue in sin. Just because we have the grace of God does not mean that we continue in the sin that we're living in. God forbid that we do that. So how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer? Any longer in that sin, huh? We, we shouldn't continue living in that sin. Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, we were baptized into his death. We see the linkage here between baptism and the death of Jesus. In verse 4, it tells us, uh, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We see that link between what Jesus experienced on the cross and what, what we experience in this new birth, uh, and, and especially baptism in the name of Jesus. Colossians chapter 2 verse 12 also gives us a link between baptism and the death of and burial of Jesus says buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. We see these, this identity that uh, comes to us of, through the death and burial of Jesus, that we ourselves partake in that in baptism. I believe that scripture is very clear that water baptism is necessary for salvation. That if you have not been baptized, then uh, if you have not been immersed in water, baptized in Jesus' name, then you have not had your sins completely removed from your life. This is a necessary component of salvation. Can you love God without it? Yes, you can love God without it. Can you live a good life without being baptized? Yes, you can live a good life without being baptized. But 
loving God and living a good life are not the same as coming to him on that day of judgment when he will say, is my name and has my uh, have you done that which I have asked of you to do, which to experience uh, this baptism in my name so that you could be saved? That is what gains us entrance. That's what gains us eternity is, is obedience to the word of God. And so I believe scripture is very clear that this is a necessary component of salvation. It's not just joining a church. I've, I've heard, and this is a very uh, popular saying of, of many Christian denominations, that baptism is a public declaration of somebody's faith in God. But it's not just a public declaration of someone's faith in God. It is that, but it's more than that because uh, Scripture clearly links it to a remission of our sins. That it's not just you declaring your faith in Jesus. That happens when you are baptized, that you have faith in him. But there is something spiritually that takes place in baptism, that your sins are remitted. Your sins are forgiven at that in that very instance. And that's why we rejoice when I see somebody baptized, because that is somebody's past completely erased. Their past erased. We see a new name that's written down in, 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 in heaven in that day. And what a, a glorious thing to experience somebody who is uh, having their sins forgiven. Amen. We better continue here because there's other questions that uh, arise with baptism and how, uh, how it ought to be accomplished. Another question is, you know, what... Uh, what about uh, these baptisms that that I see and, and, and hear about or, or know about or even yourself, you, maybe you experienced it, where it is not immersion, which immersion means to be completely dipped under the water. Is it baptism to have water just sprinkled over someone? And uh, we want to answer that question not by looking at church history, but rather by looking, as I said, at Scripture. See, immersion, which means to dip completely under the water, was the only mode of baptism that we see recorded in the Bible. There's a very good reason for that, and, that's, and that is that the very word baptism, or to baptize, means to dip under the water. The very definition of the word is to be completely immersed in the water. And so uh, it would not even make sense uh, for that to be done in any way when that's even the very definition of the word. But let's just go to some, uh, some of these uh, instances of baptism that we see recorded in Scripture. In Acts chapter 8, verse 36, says there that uh, as they went went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? In fact, uh, I, sh- I should have continued that. Let me, I'm going to pull that up in my Bible here, in Acts chapter 8, verse 36. So we see him, he's coming to the water there, and uh, says, uh, What does hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
He commanded the chariot to stand still. They went down. Notice this. They went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And they, when they were come up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. We see them going down into the water and coming up out of the water. And so we see this, um, this experience of going into the water and up out of the water that's connected there. In Acts chapter 10, another time that we see baptism taking place. It says, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And they prayed they him to tarry certain days. They're looking for enough water to be baptized. Is there anybody who uh, would forbid this water baptism to take place? We see also um, some references to baptism. These themselves are not baptisms that are taking place, but in the letters of Paul to uh, Rome and to, to Colossae, we see references being made to baptism that only makes sense, the reference only makes sense if that person is being immersed in water. Uh, so let, let's just go to those, those two scriptures in Romans 6, verse 4, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. To be buried with him in baptism. You don't just sprinkle a little bit of dirt on somebody when you're burying them. You put them completely under. And so we are buried with him in baptism um, there. And, and then also in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, it says, again, they are buried with him in baptism. And so that burial, that, uh, that would really only make sense, that analogy, that metaphor, uh, when we link it to going completely under the water. And that was the only way that the early church did it. And we see that not just in scriptural records, but we see that also from the writings of the uh, other early church fathers that baptism was only done by immersion uh, completely under the water. And it was only only when... um, there were these matters of convenience that began to emerge about some uh, these, these non-biblical practices of baptism began to emerge within the church. And uh, this, this idea of, uh, of, you know, what about babies who die and a, a baby who dies? And I'm not going to necessarily, I don't think we have time to, to dive into all of the reasons for this, but... We see infant baptism that took place, and I would say that baptism must be a choice of, of an individual, that uh, when somebody comes of an age when they can make that choice for themselves, that's the point when somebody needs to experience baptism. But sometime, uh, or at some point along the way, there was this idea that every baby ought to be baptized, and through that they would didn't think it was safe to dip the baby under the water. And so they began to sprinkle water on the baby. There's also triple baptisms that would happen. And uh, we still see that as they, uh, some churches, they would, uh, actually I've even seen it where people will immerse three times, which um, I won't make a comment on that. But it, uh, uh, we do see that uh, specifically on, with sprinkling that uh, it is three times uh, that that churches will sprinkle, and we see that 
taking place. But also, and especially this, is where we see sprinkling enter into the church. Uh, church history is the postponement of baptism until the deathbed. When somebody in the church would even teach, don't get baptized until you're right at your deathbed because uh, you may sin afterwards. Now, we've already addressed that, that there's a place of, for repentance following baptism. But uh, we, we saw that take place. And uh, when somebody was not physically able to go to the water, they began to sprinkle them with water. But we see that that's not, there is no biblical record for that. There's no biblical record for sprinkling water on somebody, and that being considered baptism. The last question that, uh, that, that I see that arises is, what about the, the baptismal formula? Does it matter what is said? Does it matter uh, what, uh, what the minister, that person who is baptizing you, what they say at the point of baptism? And especially, you know, we, we see this... Uh, this question of, is it done in the name of Jesus or is it done in the name of the, of the um, Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost? And I want to just look at the scriptural record. What does scripture have to say about this, uh, about this question here? And we see that, uh, I see seven reasons that baptism is done in Jesus' name. Seven reasons that it's done in the name of Jesus. Perhaps I should have flipped this uh, and, and just pointed to you that, or pointed us to some, uh, the fact that Scripture, uh, the only play, only formula in Scripture it is baptism in Jesus' name. That's the only way that we see it done. And we'll get to some of these Scriptures here in a minute. But let's first look at some of the reasons why uh, it's done in the name of Jesus. And baptism, it connects us with Jesus' death and burial. We already read that in Romans 6, 4. That we have this connection between us and Jesus and uh, his, his death and his burial. And uh, through baptism, we are connected to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And then, um, then being buried in the, in the grave. We see also baptism personally identifying us with Jesus. Galatians three twenty seven, at baptism we take on the family name. Ephesians three verses fourteen and fifteen talks about us taking on the name of Jesus at baptism. The name of Jesus is vital for salvation. There is no no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's what it says in Acts four twelve that the name of Jesus. Is the only name that has the, the authority and the power to save us from our sins. That the name of Jesus is vital for salvation. Now also, the name of Jesus is what has authority. It has authority. There is authority in the name of Jesus. And we see that in Acts chapter 4, verses, verse 7 and verse 10. Let me get there. Acts 4, verse 7 says... When they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said to them, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all that, and to all the people of Israel that 
By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. That it was the name of Jesus that we saw power and authority that was, uh, that was there in enabling them to heal someone. Name of Jesus has authority. Also, baptism in Jesus' name signifies his lordship over our life. That he is the Lord of my life. That he is the one that is the king of my life. And I put him in that place when I'm baptized in his name. That also baptism in Jesus' name accepts that all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Jesus Christ. And we see that in Colossians 2, 9 through 12, where it talks about all the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in Jesus and as I already said, baptism in Jesus' name was the only formula in Scripture for baptism unto salvation. The only way that we see people being baptized unto salvation is in the name of Jesus. And I've got to wrap this up quick, but we've already read it in Acts 2.38, but in Acts 8.12 uh, and 6 and 16, Acts chapter 10, verse 48, Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 22, all of these places in this historical account of the early church, which is the book of Acts, every time we see somebody being baptized, it's done in the name of Jesus. Every time. Now, there are baptisms that are not done in the name of Jesus. We see John the Baptist who baptized, and what took place to those who were baptized under John's baptism. We see it in Acts chapter 19. If you go to that uh, uh, portion of Scripture, and I'll, I'll let you do that um, uh, at your own, own time, but in Acts chapter 19, if you read through that account, we see people who had been baptized one way that was not in the name of Jesus, and they're re-baptized in the name of Jesus because it was that important for them to have the name of Jesus applied at baptism. So if you've been baptized in one way, one manner, and and it has not been accomplished in the name of Jesus, I want to be baptized the way that Scripture, the only way that Scripture points to for salvation, which is in the name of Jesus. Now, here is where we want to end. It's in Matthew 28, verse 19. And this is Jesus speaking about baptism here uh, right before he leaves this earth, he tells his disciples, go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And notice there that he points them to, to baptize them in the name, a one singular name. Uh, and it's all of these other uh, things are not the name. These are titles. The Father is a title. The Son is a title. The Holy Ghost is a title. All of these are titles. And Jesus telling them to baptize in the name, and that name is Jesus Christ. And so that's why we see not, uh, that's why we, we don't see them uh, just going their own way, doing whatever they, they want. But instead, uh, when I'm pointing to the early church, No, they are accomplishing what Jesus told them to accomplish by baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, which is Jesus. That one name that has power, that one name that has power to save. 
Amen. That name of Jesus, there is nothing sweeter than that name. There is nothing that has more power than that name. That name of Jesus Christ has power to save. And if you have not been baptized today in the name of Jesus Christ being immersed, I want you to know that you can experience the uh, every sin that you have ever had in your life being forgiven. Even today. You can experience that. In fact, we have a baptismal that's ready right now. If you want to be baptized even today, you can experience that. There's a place of repentance that you can come to where you would repent of your sins. But then that, uh, that place of baptism, uh, the opportunity for baptism is here right now. That you can have your sins forgiven. Amen. Here today, I know this is a, a Bible study intensive morning here today, but I, I find joy in knowing that God has made a plan. He's made a way for me to experience salvation. In fact, can we just stand in this place? I want to just end this Bible study here this morning just with a song of praise. Amen. Right now in Jesus' name. Jehovah.